As a boy, a young Bruce Wayne watches in horror as his parents are slain in front of his eyes, a trauma which leads him to become obsessed with revenge, but his chance is cruelly taken away from him by fate. After disappearing in the Middle East where he seeks counsel with a dangerous but honourable ninja cult leader known as Ras al Ghul, he returns to his now decaying Gotham City, overrun by organised crime and dangerous individuals manipulating the system, while the company he inherited is slowly being pulled out from under him. The discovery of a cave under his mansion and a prototype armoured suit leads him to take on a new persona, one which will strike fear into the hearts of men who do wrong. He becomes... Batman. In the new guise and with the help of rising cop Jim Gordon, Batman sets out to take down the various nefarious schemes in motion by individuals such as Mafia boss Don Falcone, the twisted doctor drug dealer Jonathan Crane aka the Scarecrow, and a mysterious third party that is quite familiar with Bruce and waiting to strike when the time is right. Ciao my people and welcome to our 21st episode of Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast where we cover superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image and more. If it came from a comic and had a theatrical release, you know we'll discuss it. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and today we'll be discussing Batman Begins. And with me today to take on what ultimately would re-spark the Cape Crusader fire in the world at large is the voice behind the band Silence Follows, Lee Leonard. Hey Lee, how are you doing? Hey, Nick, I'm doing great. How about yourself? Thanks for remembering the band name. Oh, you're very, very welcome. <laughs> well, I've, I've actually really enjoyed listening to Silence Follows Me, so I, I'm actually a, a fan of yours, I should say. I'm a fan of the oh, band, wow. for sure. And I really, really like what you guys are doing with that. So, and plus, it's a very—I think it's a very simple name to remember. Seeing, <laughs> seeing other bands, you know, which have some rather obscure names, this one's an easy one. Yeah, it is. It is. You got to go for easy. <laughs> Oh yes, exactly, exactly. It makes for, it makes for good marketing. Well, of course, we're very, very happy to have you with us today here on Happiness and Darkness. And um, what we usually ask our first-time co-hosts uh, on the show is the first thing I want to ask you was how did you get into comics and superhero movies? What was it? You know, were you a comic reader way back when, or, or were you just fan of the films? Well, I got to be honest. Uh, my comic book love really just was uh, limited to Archie comics when I was a kid. I grew up in the '80s, you know, so. It, it was pretty big back then, and I know other kids were into comics, but I really wasn't. I was just an Archie kid. Uh, but, you know, growing up in, uh, I guess in 1989, the, the uh, Michael Keaton Batman uh, I saw in theaters and just completely fell in love. And uh, gradually, you, you couldn't avoid superhero movies. So, you know, anyone with an imagination has got to love these. And, I, you know, I'm a science fiction fan. Um you know, it's just I feel like superhero movies really fit nicely in, into the into the type of things that I would like um, growing up. So, uh, well, definitely, definitely sounds like it for sure. And we have had the chance to hear you on the Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast, and where we, you've definitely expressed your love for Doctor Who. And it's wonderful also to have a fellow Whovian on the on the show with us today. And so today we we are reviewing a new show's Batman Begins from two thousand five. Directed by Christopher Nolan, who we'd actually met on The Dark Knight, it stars, once again, Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. Batman, Michael Caine as Alfred Pennyworth, Katie Holmes this time as Rachel Dawes, Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox, Gary Oldman as James Gordon, Killian Murphy as Dr. Jonathan Crane, a.k.a. The Scarecrow, and Liam Neeson as Henri Ducard, a.k.a. Russell Gould. 
It was written by David S. Goyer and Christopher Nolan. The score was by Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard. And on estimate, um, Lee, it cost $150 million to make, and it made $375 million at the box office. So not a bad result for what we say could almost be a Batman reboot in the movies. Uh, now, my, my question was, when we sent you the list of films to pick, why did you gravitate towards Batman Begins? Well, uh, I'm looking at you, Charles Skaggs. You stole my pick. <laughs> Dark Knight Returns is the one that I really wanted to do, but uh, I also wanted to do Joker, but John Schneider got that one. So my runner-up was Batman Begins. Um, seeing that movie really, in my opinion, a lot of people, um, they look to, uh, I would say, Iron Man as the uh, the superhero movie that really sort of awoke America to, to how a, a superhero movie could be done. But I really think this is the one right here. Mm. So. Well, yes, and it also it was, of course, released three years prior to, to Iron Man. So uh, I think it definitely, definitely sparked something for sure. And I also actually wanted to put this film into context for our listeners. As since Batman and Robin, many could say the franchise was tainted. And case in point, no Batman films were made for eight years till this film turned up. So obviously it had a lot riding on it and expectations were certainly high. So the way I would go about analyzing this film, Lee, is by looking at the two main themes that I feel are felt throughout this film, i.e. the many father figures of Bruce Wayne and his relationship with them. And of course, the topic of fear, which is pervasive throughout the film and how we also see how this is used by various characters to achieve their ends. So. Going to the issue, say, first macro topic of father figures, before going to the most obvious one in any Batman-related story, I would go with one that we don't often get much of, but we got a lot more of in this film. The relationship between Bruce, young Bruce Wayne, in this case played by Gus Lewis, who our listeners might have seen in the film Asylum, and his father Thomas Wayne, played by Linus William Roach who uh, people might have seen RFK, The Gathering Storm, Priest, and Nonstop. So when it comes to this initial relationship, Lee, what do you think about this first, shall we say, fundamental relationship in building Bruce Wayne? And of course, also what do you think of the performances of Gus Lewis and Linus William Roach? Uh, I have to be honest, I didn't particularly like, um, uh, what's his name, Gus? Yeah. The, 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 the kid. I kind of fell in love with uh, David Mazuz from, from Gotham. I thought his portrayal of young Bruce Wayne was far superior to this one. But he's not in it very long. Um, you know, give him a pass. Uh, he's so young. And uh, child actors uh, can, be, can be, it can be tough as a kid to, to play a role like this. So, um, but as for his relationship with uh, Thomas Wayne, I mean, his dad was always there for him. You know, he, he has a really solid relationship with his dad. His dad is his safety net. Um, and uh, so I think the loss of that was was really tragic and, and it really uh, kind of messed up his, his young life. Very much so. And in fact, you, you just mentioned this and I actually have gone on record saying that child actors can often be a gamble, even more so when you're telling a story in which a child is severely traumatized to the point where, like you were saying, it alters his whole persona. Now, I think showing us these scenes, though, was essential, seeing the kind of Batman we would eventually get here. And like you were also mentioning, we can tell that Bruce and Thomas have a very close and loving relationship. And that Thomas Wayne, though being a very busy and successful man, is able to find time for his son and does so with great love. 
Case in point, you know, you were talking about a safety net when when Bruce falls down into the cave and also when he is desperate to leave the theater. You know, his father comforts him when needs be and he does not bat an eye when his son wishes to leave. Though you could also think this might lead him into becoming more spoiled. You know, the fact that he always got his way with it when, with his dad. But um, at the same time, there was a wonderful, wonderful relationship. And I was so glad we finally got to have a few moments of Thomas and Bruce. Because usually, as you know, obviously, in other um, Batman films or TV shows, etc., we always see a brief shot of the Waynes shortly before they're killed. So we never get to really appreciate that. And No, you really don't. Yeah. You don't. Exactly. And I think and I think it was it was wonderful for that reason. And speaking of Bruce <clears throat> and his transition from childhood to adulthood, another huge relationship which carries on into his career as Batman is the one he has with his best friend and confidant, Alfred Pennyworth, of course, played in this case by Michael Caine. What did you think of this? Shall we say it, to talk about this, you know, this is first chapter of the Nolan trilogy. How did you like the relationship between Bruce and Alfred in this film? Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, uh, Michael Caine is a treasure. So anytime you can get him, that's fantastic. Uh, I, young Bruce, young Bruce. I'm assuming he's a teenager when we see him um, uh, right before the the trial of uh, Joe Ch- or when Joe Chill is released. Um, I'm assuming that he was a teenager at that point. It was tough to tell because they really had to de-age Christian Bale. Um, but young Christian Bale at that point in time was was. He was moody. He was brooding, um, and Alfred was was stern with him, but uh, he was also very loving. And as as he says, you know, you haven't given up on me yet. And he says never. And uh, I just love Michael Caine's portrayal. I love how he's. It's so easy for him to show his emotion. He gets choked up many times, and in, in, in fact, in all of these this this trilogy, and uh, I just you know he, every time he gives one of his speeches to to young Bruce, I or even older Bruce, it's just, uh, you know, you get you get the feels. Oh, very much so. And you also t- touched up earlier about being a fan of the Gotham TV series. Would you say that you preferred Sean Pertwee's Alfred to Michael Caine's? Oh, oh man. <laughs> don't, don't, don't make <laughs> me pick. You, <laughs> you know, Sean Pertwee, um, is, he, he's got a bit of a, um, a leg up on, on Michael Caine only because he's John Pertwee's son. And uh, I, I, I love John Pertwee is, is one of my top favorite doctors. So um, I'm still pulling for Sean to get on Doctor Who. But uh, I don't know. They're so different. They're so different, man. I, huh, It's really tough to pick between the two of them. But they are my two top favorite Alfreds, I will say. Mm, and I actually have a feeling that, you know, that when it came to Sean Pertwee's performance, he may have taken something from this particular Michael K, from this particular Alfred. Maybe sure. not only it being the most recent one, but also just the way he behaves compared to, say, Michael Goth in the earlier Batman films. I think that he, they may have wanted to draw on this, seeing what a stellar performance Michael Caine did. And I think that, you know, the success of any Batman film or TV show hinges heavily on this relationship between Bruce Wayne and, and Alfred. And in this case, and indeed throughout the entire Nolan trilogy, Kristen and Michael do a splendid job and they certainly have superb chemistry. Michael Caine is wonderful in this film, as you were saying also, and both as a father figure and fundamental support to Bruce. 
Indeed, we see that he is the one to make sure that Bruce keeps up the persona of the sport billionaire playboy. Because he's the one who's telling him, you know, you have to attend social events. You have to be sure that you're dating, you know, actresses or models and stuff. So I think he, he also keeps Bruce grounded in maintaining the facade of being the spoiled playboy. Though we also see that just like the parent he is, I think he also hopes that his surrogate son will eventually give up the cowl and settle down. Though he is fully supportive of what Bruce is trying to achieve as Batman. So I love that uh, that parental, yet at the same time, I hope you won't have to do this for the rest of your life. Um, and so we get to the love interest, another relationship that has played a part in Bruce's life since his early days, at least in this trilogy, Katie Holmes as Rachel Dawes whom our listeners might know from Dawson's Creek, The Ice Storm, Thank You for Smoking, Jack and Jill, and many more. This, though, obviously is probably one of the only non-parental relationships we get in this film, Lee, but I would say still a very poignant one. Did you like the chemistry between um, Bale and Katie Holmes, or were you not a fan of this one? Well, um, I'm not really much of a fan of Katie Holmes in this movie, I've got to tell you. Uh, her, her performance is terrible. I hate to say it. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal did a much better job. And I'm not even really that much of a fan of hers. But uh, when I first saw this back in 2005, I didn't have a problem with it. And I guess I could chalk that up to me just being young and maybe having a little bit of a crush on her. But, oh, it was so bad. On rewatch, I was just like, oh, boy. I, I just imagined Christopher Nolan just sitting there like, this isn't Dawson's Creek, Katie. <laughs> yeah, sh shape up or go home, you know. <laughs> Get it together. Well, so, I, I, yeah. I don't know how you felt about her, but I, I was not a fan of uh, of Rachel Dawes as uh, Katie Holmes. Mm. Well, I mean, I suppose we had to have a love interest. And though I have to admit that I was not a huge fan of Katie Holmes in this film, as though Nolan and Goy, I think, give her more to do in this first chapter compared to the second one, because as we know, she does die in the, in, the, in the Dark Knight. It is clear, as has often been said on this podcast, that both, have, both Goya and Nolan have trouble writing strong female characters. You know, on the plus side, though, compared to Maggie Guidenhall, in Katie Holmes's defense, we do see more of her as the assistant district attorney in this film. And we can see that she's determined to do her job and do her part in ridding Gotham of its corruption. Though at the same time, you can also tell she's fighting a losing battle. And though she's supposed to be in Bruce's moral conscience and also a reminder of what he's fighting for, and certainly I think it, I, I, it, she misses the mark in the, being the moral conscience, I think. I mean, she does a great job as an assistant district attorney, but the moral conscience part, mm, not so much. No. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I think she does. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, I, I feel like she treats him like crap. Uh, both movies, really. And every time it's like, what can Bruce do to, to get her approval? You know, even when he you know, shows him to be more than just his name, you know, uh, and more about his actions. She still isn't, she's still like, you know, oh, you know, the, the man I fell in love with isn't, isn't there. He's, he's out there somewhere. It's like, come on, Rachel, what do you, what does he got to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. He's constantly seeking approval, as you're saying, in her eyes, but she never seems to let up at all. Only maybe at the end of the film, but at the same time, there's the caveat of, yes, well done on what you're doing, but right. you know, at the same time, I want you to give up being Batman. If not, you know, it's not going to happen between us. So 
she does kind of play more than two hards to get, I would just say. <laughs> just a little yeah. bit, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, aside from that, I, you know, I, I did appreciate the fact that she, we got a little bit more of the, the, district, the assistant district attorney. And, I have a question. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, is, there a Kate, is there a Rachel Dawes in the comics? Because, I mean, I've only read three or four Batman comics, you know, the big ones, Year One, Killing Joke, Dark Knight Returns. Um, does she exist? No, she does not. In, in fact, you make a very good point because they could have used tons of different other love interests that Bruce has had throughout the course of Batman's history. I mean, you could have easily have just gone with Vicky Vale, for example, like they did in uh, in Batman 1989, or you could have gone with Silver Saint Cloud, or you could have gone with tons of other ones. But she was she was created literally by um, Goya and Nolan. Because I suppose they had to give him, obviously, some sort of love interest and something to fight for. Well, I mean, and then I guess, but, you know, as we were also saying in the Dark Knight review, she is, she does end up, unfortunately, being more of a plot device than anything else. Yeah, I guess that's called uh, fridging, right? <laughs> exactly, fridging. That is the correct <laughs> term. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I think it's just maybe the, the character does lack depth at times, but seeing also Goya and Nolan's previous attempts at strong female characters, she's one of the better ones, which I know is not saying much, but it's an improvement. Um, but going back to the father figures here, Lee, let's look at two other strong performances. Gary Oldman as James Gordon and Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox. What do you think of the relationship that Bruce has with these two, shall we say, potential father figures? Well, I mean, as far as performances go, those two knock it out of the park, and, and they always do. But um, the relationship he has with Gordon, uh, I, I look at it as possibly not really much of a father figure, but more of a, I mean, maybe when he was young, but as he got older, um, I, I see Gordon as more of, if Batman could have anybody as a friend, you know, I, I think James Gordon is going to be that person. Um, and... Uh, and Morgan Freeman and Head, that's, in my opinion, the best chemistry in the film is between uh, Morgan Freeman and Christian Bale. I thought they were fantastic together. Uh, the little quips and one-liners from Morgan Freeman were great. Um, but yeah, I, I think that those two are, are more friends. Uh, those two characters are more friends of, of Bruce than maybe necessarily father figures. That's just how I see it. I don't know about you. Right. No, no, because I, in fact, I, I guess you could probably say, yeah, to, I mean, I could probably correct the course. They're saying it's they're more fundamental relationships in in Bruce's journey as an early Batman and even more so as the films progress. I mean, the James Gordon Batman relationship is yet another very important relationship in the Batman mythos. And, you know, when you have such an incredible actor as Gary Oldman playing the role, like you were saying, you know, you're in for a treat. You can certainly tell in this film the seeds are sown for what will one day become the longtime friendship. And I love the fact that Bruce is able to return the favor to Gordon for comforting him as a child and being fit there for him. And he does his utmost to bring Gordon in as much as he can, and he trusts him wholly and completely. So a wonderful relationship and so well depicted. And of course, Morgan Freeman, well, I, I love the fact that he knows exactly what is going on. And Bruce knows that he knows. <laughs> But the two of them never openly address it. You know, I thought that was that was a, a, a very a cool um, idea and concept. You know, it's very much there. I would say it's kind of like the dad 
that might do with a son, you know, because you have the support and indulgence and you don't ask questions. You know, right, like, right. I know what you're up to. I know you've you been know? drinking, son, but I don't want to know about it, you know. Exactly. So I think it's in that kind of sense, like, you know, <clears throat> don't try to pull a fast one over me because I know exactly what's <laughs> what, I know exactly what's going on. And I like that. Though the character of Lucius Fox in this case fulfills Nolan's love of the Bond franchise, you know, you get, it's kind of his cue. You know, it's Batman's cue in this sense. Um, he yeah. Gets, uh, know, I was, I was, I was yeah. just, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I believe that this is the movie that inspired Michael Wilson and Barbara Broccoli to reboot James Bond. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I could certainly see that for sure. Yeah. Especially that the the way Morgan Freeman plays, shall we say, this modern era almost cue to Batman. Right. You know, it's 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 very very cool, and and I think he also just goes beyond just being the man who supplies Batman with his lovely toys. I mean, he does this great job of that, but at the same time, there's more depth to him in that. And I think you, the relationship, obviously, we see some of it here, and it becomes even bigger and bigger and bigger as the as the we get the other two chapters of this trilogy. And before we tackle the two big villains in this film, Lee, and how they relate to Bruce, I would take a few minutes to look at. The, should we say some other, should we say a pre-villain, as it were, Tom Wilkinson as Carmine Falcone. Our, he's done so many things, of course. I mean, we could mention films like In the Bedroom, Michael Clayton, John Adams. The man has, has so many films to his name. When it came to, were you familiar with Tom Wilkinson as an actor? And what did you think of, um, of the character of Carmine Falcone in this film? Um, I... I've seen him. He's one of those character actors that you just know you've seen in a million places. Um, and I thought he did a really good job of portraying the mob boss. Um, uh, I, I thought he did a great job. I really don't. I, he was in the movie um, just, you know, for a few brief periods. Uh, but I, th I thought he did a great job. I didn't I don't really have that much to say about his portrayal because I honestly I don't I don't have anything to compare him to really except for the uh, the. Falcone that was in Gotham, um, played by, I can't remember his name, but he was in uh, Dexter. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I thought he was great. And and also, you know, tying it into our our theme of fear, you know, because obviously here we come to the darker um, uh, part of the spectrum, obviously, and the fact of how fear is so important in this film. You know, I think you could say that he is very much the stereotypical mob boss, you know, kind of a reminder of maybe what Bruce could have become with his money and influence. Sure. And, and, yep. and uh, I'm sorry, but uh, another thing I noticed about Falcone was that he's really the tipping point, in my opinion, of, of what causes young Bruce to finally say, you know what, this is not what I want. Um, he's got a point about, um, you know, the, the not really truly understanding what it's like to be at the bottom of the pile in Gotham. And uh, that's the scene where he immediately, he goes out into the street, he gives the homeless man his coat, and he decides that he's going to go do something about that. So really, in this, in this trilogy, uh, Carmine Fa Falcone is, is the, the trigger, the linchpin, so to speak, for Batman. I think. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so, for sure. And and I think you know what. Speaking of the, I was saying also the, of the fact of the fear and the stuff, and that Bruce could have possibly become a mob boss himself if he'd wanted to. He instead uses, of course, his money and influence to do good. There, there is also that fear factor to discuss. As while Bruce, you know, uses Batman as a deterrent to stop purveyors of crime, but he'll never stoop to murder. 
Falcone, on the other side, uses fear and intimidation on civilians and, of course, has no problem whacking anybody who gets in the way of the mob. So I thought there was a nice, um, interesting concept there where you had two people that somewhat represent fear, but they use it in two completely different ways. Sure. And I guess you could say the same about Crane. Exactly. And in fact, yeah. Speak, yeah, speaking of which, we come thus to the embodiment of fear when it comes to Batman's famous villains, Killian Murphy as Dr. Jonathan Crane, a.k.a. the Scarecrow. Once again, the man has, has tons of, of titles to his name from The Wind That Shakes the Barley, Breakfast on Pluto, Mr. Man, and recently the great TV series Peaky Blinders. And looking at, once again, this, this um, theme of fear and how the Scarecrow represents it, what do you think of this particular Scarecrow and how he uses fear and also, of course, Killian Murphy's performance? Well, this is another character that I was not familiar with until I saw this uh, movie. Uh, but I was always a fan of Killian Murphy from 28 Days Later. And apparently uh, Jonathan, not Jonathan Nolan, not Jonathan Nolan, <laughs> Christopher Nolan, uh, was so taken by Killian Murphy's eyes that he would do anything he could he could to try to get him to take his glasses off because he has those piercing blue eyes um but the scarecrow at least as portrayed in this is really in my opinion a, a, the other side of the coin for um for bruce wayne bat for batman actually um as far as fear because they both use fear to accomplish their goals right um you know scarecrow in a really horrible, awful way that, you know, it, it, with his, um, like, uh, psycho, psychedelic or uh, psychoactive drug, um, whereas Batman uses something that uh, frightened him as a child. So, yeah, yeah, I thought it was a, a really good mirror of Batman. Yes, exactly, because that's why I think is one of the beauties of Batman's rogues gallery is the fact that they could almost all represent a side of Batman if he went bad. Because um, in case in point, you know, just as, like the Scarecrow in this case, like you were saying, you know, he he plays apart from the fact that he plays, of course, the slimy, oily Dr. Crane so well that he seems straight out of an asylum horror film and his Scarecrow is just as good. And um, the fact that both Batman and the Scarecrow understand the human psyche very well and they know exactly how to manipulate it and if, if they so desire to destroy it. But, you know, he takes Batman's concept of fear to the extreme. The Scarecrow takes, of course, Batman's concept of fear to the extreme and is very much, <clears throat> like you were also mentioning, very much a skewed mirror version of what Batman could be if he did go ultimately bad and exploited his knowledge of chemistry and even psychology. So... And that's the thing that I really love of these various villains that we get is they are so relatable to Batman because it could really be this is what he he could be, but he decides not to be. And uh, the, the most clear version of this, of course, to complete the darker side of the spectrum is Liam Neeson as Henry Ducard, a.k.a. Ross Al Ghul. What did you think of Liam Neeson's portrayal and the character of Ross Al Ghul in this film? I have a question for you. In yeah. the com in the comics, is Raish Raish Ra's al Ghul? Is he East Asian? In the comics? Yeah, yes, he is. He is. Yeah, I found that to be a strange choice. Um, and in fact, his whole uh, League of Shadows, all those, all the warriors that were portrayed in the movie were all played by non-Asian actors. So I think that's a little bit problematic. But I love Liam Neeson. Um, he's great. Uh, I just wished that, that maybe they had used somebody who was 
not white guy. Um, mm. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought the scenes between those two were fantastic. Uh, his presence on the screen is is just uh, palpable. Um, so, some of the scenes between them were fantastic. The the sword fight on the ice uh, that was a great scene, memorable scene. Um, uh, apparently, the when they were doing that scene, um, the the sound of the ice cracking was real, uh, and they were terrified shooting that scene. And uh, I guess the next day, the ice had completely melted, so they were in real danger when they were out there fighting. Wow. Well, so I think it just adds that more realism to it, and and thank God, you know, that, you know, nothing happened to either Christian Bale or yeah. to Liam Neeson. Uh, and I, I actually really love the relationship between these two, and I think once again there is a lot of parental, um, a parental relationship going on at first between yeah. between Liam Neeson and Christian Bale, especially because of the fact that you know he, he's not only his mentor. But he also is, is it's, I guess it's the typical example of tough love because, you know, obviously he, he, he obviously is a very tough taskmaster himself, I guess, obviously being the head of the demon and being the, the head of the League of, Sha- of, uh, of Shadows, he has to be. Um, but I really love this relationship and I thought it was a nice nod also to one of Batman's mentors in the comics because Henry Ducard is actually a French detective that Bruce studies under in his travels to learn how to become a great detective. While, of course, you know, Russell Gould is the head of the League of Assassins and one of the many historic villains in Batman's famed rogues gallery. Did you like, speaking actually of the, the whole training montage, let's call it, and Bruce's, shall we say, travel in this, what did you think of the whole, shall we say, training session and the fact we actually got to see Bruce's journey in learning to become Batman through the the um, the tutor the tutorship of uh, Russell Hall. Oh, I thought it was great. I thought um, it was something that I had really wanted to see because you never had seen that before. And um, yeah, uh, I, I thought that the scenes um, at the the monastery, I guess that was mm-hmm. uh, when they were, um, especially the scene with uh, when all of those, I guess they called them ninjas. Were lined up and he was on that you know the flower I mean, he was under the influence of that flower uh it was fantastic and that was really when i think when bruce finally uh bested the master in uh in in that during his time there mm. why well, and i really enjoyed it myself i thought it was wonderful actually like you were saying seeing it almost a coming of age uh story almost the fact that we finally get to see we don't get to see batman immediately it's all about how Bruce Wayne becomes this uh, this famous character, and, and I thought it was beautiful. And also, Liam Neeson, as we know, is one of Hollywood's most charismatic actors. And aside, of course, I, I agree with you, it could have maybe have gone with an Asian actor. It would have been kind of cool to possibly do that. But that aside, I think he was a perfect choice for the role. As you could easily tell that, like many Batman villains, had Bruce once again embraced a different path, he could have easily become the next Russell Wu or head of the demon. As both Bruce and Raz, both they want they want both want to cleanse the world of evil and corruption. Though at the same time, of course, Raz's view is to do it much more ruthlessly and with a complete disregard of the fact that just like Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, they may actually be small yet be a significant percentage of innocent people in Gotham that are worthy of being spared and. I, I don't know about, about you, Lee, but I was very much reminded of almost the relationship of God with Abraham in the sense that you have this wrath, wrathful God. 
i.e. Rasul Ghul, that we get in the Old Testament. And Abraham is asking God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah because of the fact that there may be innocence in both cities. And it's almost like we have Bruce and, uh, and Ras, you know, because he's telling him, I understand you want to get rid of criminals, but at the same time, they are also good people in this city. Um, so it's, I, I kind of got that vibe I'm, and that kind of yeah. comparison. But like I said, it, maybe it's just me and my search for a biblical <laughs> reference. By the no, way, that's, yeah, that's a fascinating take. I hadn't even thought of that. Um, what, the, what I got out of that was, was more, this is yet another step on the way to becoming Batman at the hands of something sinister. Um, you know, we have Ra's al Ghul basically playing the father figure for Bruce and, but all the while really just taking advantage of a young person who has gone through so much tragedy and is looking for somebody to show him the way. Um, but regard, uh, Regardless of that, and um, even though that this is a terrible thing that happens to Bruce, uh, it's it's without that I don't know if he could have become Batman. Um, you know, um, it took it took this um, I I don't know terrible thing that he's doing to him and pushes him along that path. I, I definitely, I, yeah, I definitely think so. I think maybe Ross saw it that he needed that extra push to. Um, to, to go the, the extra mile, is it, when he thought, the only way I can do this is by being super tough with him and, you know, just explaining to him that the only way to, to uh, achieve his goals was to go the extreme and not spare innocent lives because his argument is, you, you know, Joe Chill, you know, the murderer of your, of your parents, did not. And so he kind of sees it almost as an eye for an eye, almost the old... Um, eye for an eye uh, concept of you know they killed your parents parents you have to do something back to them there has to be some sort of retribution in this sense and what I thought also was was very interesting when it came to this this relationship as well is you wonder how much Ross is is almost taking it like you were saying the fact of him being traumatized is taking advantage of Bruce being in a vulnerable position and is maybe opening up to you know because you see the personal stories that they share um you know, after after their fight on the ice, and Ross seems to almost open up to him and tells him the story about his wife being killed and stuff. But you wonder whether Ross is either seriously warming up to Bruce or whether he's just being manipulative and trying to lull him into the sense of, you know, it's all good. I'll take care of you. You know, what did what do you think? Do yeah. you think maybe Ross is just being manipulative, or do you think he really does care about Bruce? Yeah, it's tough to say. I had that same thought. Um, it, it, you don't know, but it doesn't really matter. In reality, he's he's manipulating him and he's exploiting his pain uh, for his own means, really. Because if he can get Bruce, you know, seeing the potential in Bruce, if he can get him to lead the League of Shadows with him, you know, that's a, a huge, huge uh, ally for him. And it's just, yeah, it's it doesn't really matter, in my opinion, whether he's telling the truth or not. It's 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 kind of gross. <laughs> 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 yes, I will. Gross is the right word. I think he is. He is. He is also very Machiavellian. So obviously, for him, the the end justifies the means. And so, if he has to possibly do the almost play act with with Bruce and say, you know, I care for you and all this kind of thing, 
to achieve the fact of grooming him to to then lead the League of Shadows, he's probably prepared to do anything in his, anything necessary to do that. And, but it was a good father uh, father son relationship as well. You kind of you kind of felt bad afterwards when you found out that he was Russell Gore and it was all one big kind of ruse. Betrayal. Yeah, exactly. Huge betrayal. Exactly. So I thought that was that was I was very sad on that. But other than that, it was a great relationship, and I absolutely loved it. And so, any final thoughts on the movies on the movie before we move forward? Oh, I, you know, I, I have my problems with this movie. Um, just some scenes where I'm going like, wait, what? how did that happen? Like, uh, there's a scene where uh, shortly after Chill is murdered, uh, uh, Bruce and Rachel are, are driving away from the courthouse and she's, you know, chastising Bruce and they're driving down the street and just absolute daylight, broad daylight. And, you know... Um, she decides to just turn onto the side street, drive down the street, and it's dead of night. So there's just weird little continuity things like that. Just little niggling things that bother me in this movie. But overall, I think it's just uh, um, it knocked it out of the park. Uh, I, th- I think at the time, this it was the best superhero movie ever. Um, and then, and then I think Dark Knight, you know, topped it. But yeah. It, very, very much so. You you were talking about nitpicking. I'm actually going to add another scene of the day and night thing. But I <laughs> that also, the scene at the theater, when Bruce tells it, you know, kind of lets his dad know that he wants to leave. Mm-hmm. How is it that such a swanky theater gives out onto such a slum and such a, should we say, <laughs> a dodgy area? <laughs> exactly. They, yeah, they, you think they would have a better... Um, passage of egress instead of just you know emptying out into the uh, some dark alley yeah because i mean unless they went they went out the back entrance because i think they went out the back entrance i right? guess and they I did think, yeah and i think to myself is even the back entrance because you think this stuff like i said it's kind of gotham's finest is attending at this theater you probably wouldn't build your theater right slap in the middle of you know the narrows the narrows yeah <laughs> It's just, it just seemed a little bit odd in that sense and a little bit too convenient. But yeah. you know, I, won't, I won't hold it against them too much. No. And my other nitpick, as it were, was the fact of we didn't really get much when it came to Martha Wayne as she barely says anything. Sure. You know? Yeah. I mean, they gave, they gave um, Linus Roach a little bit more. You know, they allowed us to see a little bit of the relationship between Bruce and Thomas. But I think we could have seen something more of Martha Wayne as well. Seeing also, granted, this was this was way before that, but seeing also the whole big Martha story in Batman v Superman. So, oh right, think, yeah. You think they could have maybe given Martha a little bit more to do, and I kind of felt a little bit bad for the actress in this sense because I think she says like one or two lines at most, but um, but it's, it's a little bit sad. But other than that, I, I really did enjoy this film myself. Yeah. I, so, yeah. I was going to say, um, side note. I wanted to ask you this. Uh, did you catch the Doctor Who uh, connections? No, I did not. Please enlighten us. There were two that I found. First is um, actor Colin McFarlane. I knew I'd seen him before. Um, he was in Before the Flood and Under the Lake. Oh, wow. I yeah. totally missed that. Yeah, I was like, I know this is a British actor. I, I don't know why I know this, but I went and looked it up. And the other... I didn't have to look up because when Crane goes to, I want to say it's probably Blackgate, um, 
the the per the the cop who brings him down uh into the where Falcone is is that's that's the new Doctor Ruth. Yes, that idea it's true. That one escaped me because I you actually mentioned this <laughs> and I'd forgotten about it completely because I thought to myself it was so weird that I was what we were I was watching this and we were reviewing this yeah right after Prisoner <laughs> Prisoner of the Jadoon. I know um, right crazy. Uh, which, it was. It blew my mind because I was like, "This is the universe at work here." <laughs> yeah, it was just. It was just too weird for words. So like, I know, hang on perfect. a second. What's the doctor doing there? Yeah. <laughs> so that was, I thought it was brilliant, but yeah, at the same time, that's that's um, that's uh, sometimes uh, how it how it goes so, uh, at yes. times, I guess. Serendipitous. Exactly. Um, so let's get to ratings at this point. Where does this movie rate for you on a scale of one to ten? Well, again. Um, if you had asked me when I walked out of this movie, I would have said, oh, 10 out of 10. It's like the best thing I've ever seen. But in hindsight, you know, on a rewatch, you know, I don't know, 14 years, no, 15 years later, uh, especially after uh, The Dark Knight came out, this bumped it back a bit for me. So I gave this an 8 out of 10. Well, I mean, that's that's fair for sure. I'm, I'm going to actually go one high. I'm going to give this a nine out of ten as, I, as it fully succeeds in resurrecting Batman on film. And I would equate it almost to what Tim Burton's Batman did for the character in sure. a time in which the Cape Crusader was associated with campiness. And, yeah. <laughs> and they kind of gave it back that chutzpah, which was so key to the character and that we so love about Batman. And of course, you can't argue with such an incredible array of Hollywood stars and a brooding, looming soundtrack. Actually, speaking of the soundtrack, you being yes. a, a musician yourself. I was hoping you'd ask me. Yeah. What did you think of, of uh, Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard's soundtrack? I thought it was fantastic, but one of the things that I noticed... Again, you're talking to a Doctor Who fan, um, and that's how I know you, Nick. Um, yeah. So I'm going to bring this up. I thought that the beginning and the end of this, um, the score at the beginning and the score at the end, had that, you know, what you would think of as that Batman swooping um, orchestra that you hear, you know, when you think of a Batman movie. But the middle, the, the I'd say the, the third act really reminded me of Murray Gold's soundtrack in series three of Doctor Who, the 10th Doctor era, with the drums, just the pounding drums. And I only noticed because uh, after last week's Doctor Who episode, I went back and I watched Utopia and Sound of Drums, and it's almost the same thing. It was like, I heard this last night. It's, it's insane. And this, of course, was before those Doctor Who episodes, but uh, I thought it was magnificent. I'm a huge Hans Zimmer fan. Um, especially his work on, which most people probably wouldn't say this, but his work on the the Hannibal movie. Um, that's when I fell in love with Hans Zimmer. So, oh, well, did you get a, cho- a chance to see the um, the live concert they have on that they've had on Netflix that they've uh, that they have there? His um, live no. in um, in Prague. No, no, I'm gonna have to check that out. Well, if if you you know if you uh, do have Netflix, and I, at least they have it over here in Europe, among the various documentaries, there's also a uh, entire concert of Hans Zimmer's in which took place in Prague, where he does together with his incredible orchestra all his most famous um, themes. So wow. obviously you get Batman, you get um, Man of Steel, you get Pirates of the Caribbean. It's it's beautiful, and as mm. a musician, I'm sure you would appreciate that even yes. more. So I know um, what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> 
There you go. I gave you, I gave you, so I gave you some, some watching recommendations. And from watching recommendations to reading recommendations, did you have any Batman stories or any stories you would like to suggest? Well, um, I think if you're gonna, if you're a fan of this movie, you're gonna want to go back and wa- uh, read Year One because I think they pulled a lot from that comic. Um, you, you could correct me if I'm wrong because you're far more your knowledge of comics is far more superior than mine. Um, but yeah, Year One is one that I would definitely check out and uh, Hush maybe. Uh, that's another another good one. Oh, well, those, those are excellent recommendations for sure. And you definitely uh, hit the nail on the head when it comes to Batman Year One, because you can clearly tell in this film that they do take a lot of that gra- of that comic, which you can now actually find as a graphic novel as well. Sure, that's how I, I read it, yeah. And it, it's just beautiful. And I and you do, there are quite a few scenes among these, for example, when the push-ups. Batman... Yeah. The push-up or, scene. Exactly. <laughs> there's that. And there's also when Batman calls the bats... Um, right, right, which, right. Which sweep through the. In, obviously, it's different from the movie, oh. but you do get that. It, it's mm-hmm. so, and the artwork there by Frank Miller and David Mazzucchelli are just is just beautiful. It's beautiful, and the scene where uh, Batman plummets down through that circular staircase when the bats are coming, he throws the little uh, beacon, the sound, the sound emitter down to direct the bats to go back down, and he jumps through them. That was just amazing. That scene was fantastic. Oh yes, the cinematography in this film is definitely is definitely Beautiful. incredible for sure. Yes, I think it definitely really highlights Nolan's great work as a as a director because um, it was just incredible. And added to to your recommendations, I would also add for anybody who wants to read more about the Scarecrow, Detective Comics five hundred and seventy one from nineteen eighty seven. The title was Fear for Sale, and it's pretty much the definitive Scarecrow story, which is ironic. Since Scarecrow's plot in this one involves taking away people's fears. Hmm. Basically, Scarecrow sells pro athletes a drug that eliminates their fear. But when they discover a lack of fear makes them reckless and prone to injury, Scarecrow charges them even more for the <laughs> cure. So it's, uh, it's definitely a wonderful, it's wonderful, a great, great story drawn by Alan Davis and written by Mike W. Barr. Uh, my people be sure to pick that up. That's Detective Comics 571 Fear for Sale. And also, I would also add Batman the Resurrection for any Russell Ghoul fans who want to read a little bit more about Russell Ghoul. That one is from 2009, written by Paul Dini, Grant Morrison, and Fabian Nicietza. Batman's immortal foe, Russell Ghoul, should be dead at last. So now he has returned to haunt the Dark Knight. And what does his return have to We also have the whole question of his teenage son, Damien. We get introduced to Batman's son. So it's definitely a great story. That's Batman the Resurrection from 2009. And uh, now we selflessly promoted stories here, Lee. Let's get to shameless self-promotion. When it comes to you and the great work that you do, where can our fine listeners find you on the interwebs? Nick, I think you took care of that for me in the beginning of the (laughs) podcast. Uh, well, uh, I don't really do much myself uh, on the on the uh, socials, but uh, I'm in a band called Silence Follows, as you said, and uh, you can find us on Facebook.com slash Silence Follows. Uh, we're on all the streaming services. We play in the local, uh, in, in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, we just got a new singer, and we're working on some new material, um, so we should be playing out again in the next couple months uh, with our new singer, and... You know, if you're around here, come out and see us. We'd love it. And I will definitely um, add add to that saying, definitely check out this awesome, awesome band of 
Lee Leonard's, they're definitely worth your time, people. Now, of course, with a great singer, Silence Follows is definitely worth your time. If you are, of course, in the Pittsburgh area, be sure to check them out for sure. And naturally, if you want to be like Lee and join us here on the show to discuss a movie of your choice, feel free to shoot us an email at happinessanddarknesshow@gmail.com. Feel free to show your support by giving us a like on Facebook, where you'll find us as Happiness and Darkness. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we're at High Darkness Pod, or on Instagram under Hin Darkness. Also, if you would like to support the podcast at Feeling Generous, you can hit the donate button on soundcloud.com slash whiskey and cigarettes or become a patron of ours on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash happiness and darkness. We really appreciate that. Any donators will be able to pick the movie we next discuss, even pick one of the recurring co-hosts we discuss it with, or come on the show themselves to discuss the movie of their choice. Also, as always, we want to send a huge thank you out to our video maker, David Moreno, the mad scientist behind all the great episode trailers you can find on our Facebook page. Be sure to subscribe to his Nostalgia channel on YouTube. The man does great work. That's Nostalgia Channel, all in capitals. And speaking of things to come, next week we'll be joined by John Takas, who has chosen the 2007 Mark Stephen Johnson film, Ghost Rider. That said, when it comes to you, Lee, once again, I look forward to having you back here with us on Happiness and Darkness, and I certainly thank you for joining me today. Thanks, man. Anytime. I really appreciate you having me on. It was a lot of fun. Oh, we definitely had a wonderful time talking to you. Well, folks, thanks as always for listening to the show and supporting us. We will see you next week with John Takas and Ghost Rider. Until then, stay super. Ciao. Ciao. Ciao.